Hey everyone, thanks for joining the Airport Wild podcast. My name is Brett Jacobson. Um, today's episode brought to you by Lumakers Wildlife Management is episode 24, in which we're actually going to have uh, Darby Albrecht, who is a airport wildlife biologist in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, she's going to be our guest on the show today. Um, one of her jobs is actually, uh, she's a trainer uh, for the FAA certified airport wildlife classes and seminars uh, that Lou Makers puts on. Uh, she also talks about her job in, uh, in Tulsa, some of the day-to-day things that she does as a biologist uh, managing the airport, um, and even shares a lot of information about uh, a rising problem with harassing bald eagles. So I uh, hope you enjoy today's episode. Sit back, relax. And as always, uh, follow us on Facebook, like us on Instagram, and we'll talk to you next time. Everybody, this is Brett Jacobson, and welcome to the Airport Wild Podcast presented to you by Lou Makers Wildlife Management. Uh, today is episode 24, and our guest is wildlife biologist Darby Albrecht. Did I pronounce that correctly? Correct. Or at least All right. Perfect, perfect, perfect. And Darby, you're in Tulsa, Oklahoma but you kind of have this thick Kentucky accent. Is that correct, too? <laughs> no, I don't think I have a Kentucky accent. If anything, well, it should be Californian, because that's where I grew up. Oh, okay. Well, we'll get into that. All right. And also, Darby, how many cups of tea do you have in front of you right now? <laughs> you would bring that up. All right. So I have one, two, three, four, five different types of tea, and this is my third, fourth for this morning. Okay. We're not going to get into the amount of different types of tea in your <laughs> explanation. So, uh, but what we are going to do, well, first off, thanks for coming on the show today. I know, obviously, you've been begging to be a guest on this show. Uh, but, uh, all right, give us a brief introduction. Tell everybody about yourself, who you are, where you're from, all that good stuff. All right, go ahead. All right, so I am Darby Albrecht um, from Tulsa, Oklahoma, as previously stated. I did grow up in Southern California in a very small town called Blythe. Um, I've been living in Oklahoma since 2011, so the majority of my life has been here. Um, <clears throat> oh yeah, it's been about a full decade now, yeah. Uh, I work for the Tul or I work with the Tulsa International Airport. I do wildlife control for them, surveys and data collection. Uh, as well as reports and analyzing uh, said data. Um, I also work with some airports out in Arkansas, uh, also doing control for them. I am actually in the process of making a type of avian trap for one of my clients out there, one of our clients out there. Um, and I'm really excited about that. It's called the repeating nest box trap, and it's supposed to be able to catch upwards of uh, several dozen starlings. Um, and starlings are a really big invasive issue. So I'm excited. Yeah, so, so let's stop right there. So, okay, so obviously I am new to this industry, right? So European starlings, right? That's uh, all the 
conferences, all the calls that I've been on, um, all the research and blogs and stuff. Holy crap. I would like, I grew up, you know, upstate New York. And like, I mean, like we have starlings and stuff and, and, and you see them, but you know, as a kid and, you know, even as an adult, you're like, oh man, that's like a cool looking bird. But when you see one, you see something completely different. What do you see? Uh, so I, I kind of see it on two sides because uh, I am an animal lover first. So I see a really intelligent form of bird, species of bird. Um, they are actually pretty cool. Uh, when you're not looking at them from a biologist standpoint, they can be taught to talk uh, on the level of like a parakeet, not like an African gray parrot, but on the level of a parakeet, it's a lower intelligence, but they can be taught to talk. Uh, they have problem solving skills, not as high as a crow, but they do have problem solving skills. Um, my favorite thing about them is to watch them tussle um, to fight. Uh, they have a really interesting form of fighting where they'll use one foot to grab uh, the other and then they'll use the other foot to try to grab the other uh, bird's beak and then they'll just kind of roll around. They look like two uh, two-year-olds wrestling basically. Nice. Um, How so big of a problem have they become? Like they're an invasive species. Where do they, I mean obviously Europe, right? Mm -hmm. European starlings, right? So, that was, so that's, e that's easy to connect those dots. But how big of a problem are they? For the continental U.S. or for me personally? Uh, we'll go continental U.S. and then we'll, uh, yeah, and then we'll, we'll talk about your trap. So they are very invasive. Um, pr they're pretty much completely across the, U uh, the United States, the continental U.S. Um, they <clears throat> are a form of, or they're a species of blackbird. And before uh, <laughs> starlings, we already had issues with blackbirds because blackbirds like to feed on our agricultural um product and stuff uh, or livestock feed, horticultural plants, all sorts of stuff. So we actually have this thing called the blackbird depredation order. Um, European starlings don't technically fall under that because they're invasive, but they're invasive so they're not federally protected. Um, so to answer your question, they are a pretty big nuisance. I am not aware of if we have an accurate population count of them or not, mm -hmm. but they are one of the top most invasive species of avian species that we have in the U.S. So, I mean, how do you, in your opinion, I guess, how do they disrupt kind of like the ecosystem and like, why do they got to go? Uh, I don't know if we'll ever truly get them gone. That would be amazing if we could. But the main way they harm the natural order of things is they resource theft. Um, they have a huge population um, pretty much everywhere. So we have resource theft, we have habitat theft, we have nesting theft. Um, they can also be pretty big bullies. Um, so certain native birds actually get pushed off to the side uh, when it comes to food. Uh, and also, also other kinds of resor resources. Um, they are also very destructive uh, okay. to human structures oftentimes, especially in my work with uh, hangers. Um, they'll get inside the insulation in the hangers and just shred it apart during nesting season. Um, so they can get a little destructive that way. Okay, okay. Um, all right, so let's shift gears here. Um, talk about this avian trap. I know you're really excited about it. We've actually talked about it a little bit before. But um, is that to target European starlings or? So with most traps, you can't truly target um, your species. 
you can like mitigate so that you don't capture non-target species but there's always going to be the chance you do catch a native bird or maybe a feral pigeon or something uh, but it's a live trap so it doesn't kill them as they enter the box or after they exit the box they all go down into a little wire holding cage at the bottom so after you have caught your um, amount of starlings and your um, <clears throat> taking care of them. If you have any native birds, you just release those back. Um, so the nesting box trap itself is pretty interesting uh, because it relies on a lever to basically operate the trap. So you'll have a can of some kind and in its neutral position, the weight on the other end of the lever holds the can upright. Um, the bird is then allowed to enter the trap itself through the high cut entrance hole. When the bird sits on the can, the can, um, the weight of the bird pushes the can down and the bird can't exit through that entrance hole anymore. It can only go through the back hole, the exit hole, down into the actual holding cage. So it's repeating because after the bird exits the trap, uh, the can goes back into its neutral position and you can catch more starlings that way. How many uh, birds can it hold? It kind of depends on the size of the uh, the cage trap that you have, so okay. the holding cage that you have. Uh, for all bait and caught wildlife, though, you are supposed to have like a little bowl of water in there for them, uh, and you're supposed to check all the traps every 24 hours. 24 hours, yeah, I knew that. Yeah. Um, um, so now this is home. Is this homemade? Like this is your own design, or? <laughs> no, no, <okay. laughs> no, I would be patenting it if I, I was going to say, so Darby, you're not an inventor and innovator. You're uh, okay. But is it a, is it a DIY? What is it? Do it. Your, yeah. DIY. Yeah, I will be building it uh, myself. And that's going to be interesting trying to make sure I get the lever and the weight correct for the can so that okay, it operates okay. correctly. But um, yeah, I will be building it. Uh, I will definitely have uh, some help. Um, probably my grandpa, who is a carpenter. Will okay. Come nice nice um okay um so where did you let's let, let's kind of go backwards a little bit here right um so where did you uh where'd you go to college and what degree do you hold <clears throat> so i went to the college of university of science and arts of oklahoma out in Chickasha, okay. Oklahoma. um it's a fairly small uh liberal arts school um with the two main emphases that they had were their bio or their science programs and their art programs. Okay. Um, their biology programs were a bit geared towards uh, pre-med, but I was able to get some extra classes that uh, qualified me for this job. Um, as well as my degrees, uh, I actually have two degrees. Um, I have a biology degree and a natural science degree, uh, but those are pretty, there was a lot of overlap in those mm -hmm. classes. So all I had to do was get a couple extra classes to get um, both of them. Okay. Um, I know, so uh, I know when I talk to a lot of wildlife biologists, right? Um, you know, each, each one almost has uh, not like a subject matter expert, but something that they're very passionate about, whether it be birds or fish or um, um, like botany and stuff like that, right? What's yours? What's your love? Oh, that's a broad question. Um, yeah, it's a good one. I know. That's why I asked it. <laughs> so related to this job specifically, I would say my passion within this job would probably be um, invasive species control and or uh, 
my beaver trapping contract. I have a beaver okay. trapping contract uh, as well as working out here at Tulsa. And that one, that one gets pretty interesting. Um, I've caught several beaver and been, I've learned a lot about beaver as I've been uh, working with this contract. So that's been pretty fun. So what's, um? so yeah, we'll stay on that right there. So um, obviously beavers, man, they can cause some damage. They can, right? but they're also really necessary to the ecosystem. They are. So, you know, there's a balance, right? And everything, and it's kind of like a life thing, right? You know, everything's good in moderation, including the, the nine cups of tea that you're drinking. Um, <laughs> hydrating, okay? Yeah, yeah, we'll call it hydrating. And then, you know, upper and downer. Yeah, I get it. So, um, <laughs> so talk a little bit about that. Why are they necessary to the ecosystem? And then also, like, where do you draw the line of like, man, I'm on fire trapping these things, but uh, I should slow down. All right. Uh, so to answer your first question, why are they so vital to the ecosystem? Um, they are necessary because they create wetlands and wetlands help slow watershed um, and allow for a better natural water purification system. Um, basically how North America was going before uh, <clears throat> we got over here. Um, beaver building dams, they create areas of large ponds as well as areas that um, of water stand, uh, vegetation stand in standing water. Uh, that also creates a lot of really good nutritional food for other animals as well as a relatively clean water source for those other animals. So not only is the beaver helping itself, it's also helping all of its friends and neighbors. Mm -hmm. So what are some of the techniques um that you use uh, when trapping a beaver when you have a beaver contract? So my primary method is using a 330 conibear trap or a body gripping trap. Okay. Um, they are, I, I think the 330 is the largest conibear size uh, and legally I am only allowed to use them for beaver and only for underwater sets. Uh, that's because again, all traps are, or most traps are non-target or, Again, you can mitigate for to try to get your target animal, but you're never 100%. Um, mm -hmm. Actually, the very first thing that I caught in one of those traps was not a beaver. It was a very, very large alligator snapping turtle. Um, How big? Oh, it was three times my, the size of my head. It was like a good dinner plate size. <laughs> so um, we're talking like 20 plus pounds? Yeah, so I actually looked up how to tell their age um, after we uh, dealt with him, but he was probably 20 years old. Uh, that particular, oh, wow. yeah. There's there's a really cool one here at the Jinx Aquarium that's over 180 years old, and it is bigger than my desk. Um, they're prehistoric, so they're they're almost dinosaurs. Yeah, I mean we have we have snapping turtles up here in the north, but like. I always love those videos where they're catching them with their bare hands and stuff like that um, down in like the swamps of Louisiana and they're yeah. like the size of the boat <laughs> that they're in, you know, they're in like this little flat bottom freaking swamp boat and they're like, I mean, I don't know. There's, there's certain, like I always have an appreciation for certain animals and certain species, right? This is the, the snapping turtle and the alligator snapping turtle, like, and even the alligator, like mm -hmm. how they've been here before, almost like we've been here basically, 
you know, and how the age and the size, like, oh, they're just awesome, awesome species of animals. Yes, I agree. I love gators. Um, I, whenever I go do tr uh, trainings down in Louisiana or Florida, uh, mm -hmm. or sometimes uh, southeastern Texas, I, I'm always looking out for gators to try to, like, maybe go on an airboat tour or something. Yeah. But, uh, real quick disclaimer, um, that alligator snapping turtle that I caught in my trap was absolutely fine. He was pissed off, but he was fine, uh, which just goes to show you how freaking durable those things are. Because oh, yeah. the Econa bear trap, it's designed to snap across the head of the beaver or the neck and break the neck. And if we consider how stout beavers' necks are, because they're using their mouths to carry the trees. Yeah. So they have really thick necks. This 330 Econa bear didn't do anything to this turtle except for make a dent in his shell. That was it. Oh man, I bet you he was fired up. Oh yeah, you know. Okay, so in what you were talking about those shows, you know how they grab um, the turtle behind the head underneath behind the, the head. Yeah. I tried to do that and almost lost a finger. He was he was pissy. I bet. I bet. Well, I mean, you did try and kill him, so. Quickly um. <laughs> <laughs> try to kill uh, yeah, him. Yeah. yeah, I tried to kill his friend. Um. So all right. Um. So where do you draw the line? When you're doing these contracts and stuff like that, you know, where do you draw the line of like, okay, how many beaver, like when you go to a, a situation, I mean, I don't know if you're running trail cameras out there to see the activity on the dens or on some of the runs and stuff like that, but how are you drawing the line of like, okay, you know, a good number to take out would be 10 and leave, you know, an extra 10 or something like that. So I'm actually not operating uh, under that train of thought necessarily. Um, okay. Where my contract with beaver removal is situated is right next to a uh, park that has a very established, um, very prolific population of beaver. So my client actually has issues with those beaver coming up north into his property and creating dams and those dams are flooding. Um, it's actually a gun club. So those okay. dams are flooding the skeet traps. Um, that back in 2018, we had a really, really bad, uh, heavy year of rain. Um, and they had pictures up there where the beaver dams actually caused so much flooding, it actually washed two of their trap houses away. Uh, so I'm business. Huh? That's not good for business. No, it wasn't. They were not, ups they were not pleased. Um, but I'm down there uh, trapping beaver and mostly I am figuring out ways to mitigate the dams themselves rather than eliminate all the beaver because I'm never going to be able to eliminate all the beaver and I don't want to. As I said right. earlier, beaver are really necessary for the ecosystem. So we're actually um, working on a idea. Again, this isn't my trap idea, okay. but it's called a, the beaver deceiver. Uh, and what it is, it's essentially a very large PVC pipe or hose that you tear the dam apart, place the PVC pipe there, and then the beaver build the dam back over the PVC pipe. And then you either have a cap on the low end, so the, the end that doesn't have the standing water, uh, and whenever the water gets too high, the client will be able to go out there and unscrew the cap and lower the water level um, on the side of the dam. <clears throat> or we'll have a different setup where on the side that does have the standing water, we'll have an elbow and a cage around that so that the beaver can't chew it apart because they will. Mm -hmm. um, and then once the water level gets up to the top of that elbow, that'll naturally drain out. So we, we got a couple different options that we're trying. Yeah, I mean, have you ever, have you ever seen this in action? Have you ever used this before? Or is this 
So I've never used it before and I've not personally seen it in action, but there is a documentary on Beaver. Um, that's actually where I got the idea. I don't remember the name of the documentary, but um, they were having similar issues with Beaver up in Canada and they came up with this idea because they were trapping, you know, hundreds and hundreds of Beaver a day uh, with a team of like four or five people. Um, and that was just not, it, it's not, yes, the beaver population will is will be, still be stabilized, but it's not a long-term solution uh, for beaver. Um, and again, you were, you were saying earlier, we want a balance. So this is more trying to find that balance. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, in, in the industry, especially the wildlife management industry, um, what I've been learning a lot is you know, a lot of the issues is we're kind of causing them, you know, with the loss of habitat, you know, the cities are just expanding and we're, you know, we're building, we've got this obsession with land development all of a sudden, right? Yeah. And uh, so, you know, soon enough, you know, it's just a matter of time before, you know, you start to see these issues arise and it's not their fault, you yeah. know, it's our fault. Um, yeah, so, uh, it's kind of, yeah, once again, man, it always comes back to balance. Uh, so obviously, you know, you're pretty passionate and, you know, you've got really good stories, but where did the love for the outdoors come from? You know, kind of take me back. Okay. So when I was young, growing up in California, um, I grew up in a desert bowl. We had mountains pretty much on all sides. Uh, there wasn't, there was wildlife out there, but not the kind that you can just like look out and see. You had to go either dig for it or wait for nightfall. Um, but so a couple different facets. Uh, my best friend, uh, him and his dad were extreme reptile hunters, like uh, not lethal, but they go out and catch all sorts of lizards, snakes. I um, was a really big fan of arachnids, so I'd go outside and catch uh, tarantulas, wild caught tarantulas, or um, black widows, or other stuff. Um, he, Matthew and I would often go out and uh, catch geckos, house geckos on his house. Okay. Yeah. Um, that's, that's one part. But another part was every summer and Christmas, we would come back up to Oklahoma to visit my grandparents. And um, up here, it was so green compared to where I was in California. Yeah. And I, I fell in love with it out here. Okay. Um, my grandpa would take me horseback riding and we'd go through state parks. So it, it was kind of both, so both sides that way. I just, I've always loved the outdoors. I've always loved nature. Okay. It's so beautiful. So, okay, you're a kid and you're just running through the freaking desert, catching snakes and spiders. Um. <laughs> I, I was a spider one. Um, Matthew and his dad, uh, snakes. I, I, I didn't like grabbing the snakes. Um, yeah, I, 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 look, I'm afraid of needles and I'm afraid of snakes and I'm afraid of spiders. Mm -hmm. Not like, like, I'm not gonna run, but you know, there better be a shovel nearby <laughs> um, or a, a gun. Um, anyway, so, so how old were you? So yeah, you grew up as a child in, in California. Uh, how old were you when you moved to Oklahoma? So I, we moved back to Oklahoma. I was actually technically born in Oklahoma. Um, okay. but we moved to California when I was one and we moved back when I was 11. So I had a decade out there and I've had a decade out here now. Okay. Uh, so, all right. And then, um, so college, right? So you go to college here in Oklahoma, or there in Oklahoma. Um, what's your first job out of college? <laughs> 
Walmart. <laughs> yes. Okay. <laughs> Are oh. you, how many? Uh, yeah. So people of Walmart in, Tul in Tulsa, Oklahoma. What's that like? at the time um it was interesting i wasn't a, a true walmart associate uh in a way i was part of a remodel crew so okay. i was kind of like a soft construction for walmart so okay. I had a um we were overnights and we would basically we had all this equipment that we would use to pick up the counters and move them uh that was one of my favorite things uh I was really good at it, so my boss actually put me in charge of moving the counters, so I got okay. to call out directions and stuff. Yeah. Um, really fun. Uh, Walmart was, was good. There, there were some good things that came out of it, uh, and then some other not great things, but... Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so that's awesome. Um, so, okay, so after Walmart, like, when, what, what's your first job that you get, or first career move? where you actually get to do what you're uh what you went to school for uh that would be loom makers actually nice. um so it how i found out about this job opening was actually a little a little backwards um so my predecessor at this position his wife was actually my mentor and professor at college okay and um, he was bumped up into a management position and they needed somebody to fill part-time in here at Tulsa. She knew I was in Tulsa, so she reached out to me and how the job was described to me was you put a mouse in a Frisbee cage and throw it out and catch hawks. Uh, and then you shoot coyotes. That's how the job was described to me. And you're like, sign me up. Yeah, I, I was like, oh, okay. This is, you, had, I mean, you had me at Frisbee. <laughs> yeah, it, it was a step towards wildlife, which is what I wanted. And sure. Came so much more um, okay. and I appreciate it so much so okay so so you, you know you come to Lou makers um, and how long have you been with the company uh, since August 2019 so almost two years okay perfect right so in those two years right um, I'm sure you've seen a lot you know and had to deal with a lot tell me a couple of good stories here um, what comes to your mind? What comes to your mind? I mean, obviously, training, you know, <laughs> taping mice to frisbees, which I'm gonna guess you didn't do. But no, so that's an actual um, raptor trap. It's called the balsatri trap, and you have essentially a small wire cage that you put a mouse in, uh, and then you have a weighted ring around it so that when the raptor strikes and gets tangled in the um, microfilament nooses that trap its feet, uh, it's weighted so it doesn't fly off with the trap. Um, so I have actually not yet gotten to use that because uh, I do not have a bait mouse and I haven't mm -hmm. been able to trap any bait birds. Um, and right now my rap my resident raptors, they're actually behaving pretty well. So I don't need to re relocate any of them right now. But, um, yeah, so yeah, let's, let, let's do that here. So what are some of the, what are some of the responsibilities that you have? I mean, I know you talked about your beaver contract um, and obviously, but what goes into you know, like if, I, if, I'm a, if I'm a wildlife biologist and, you know, I know Lou Makers actually has a couple of positions that are open around the country and mm -hmm. it's like, yeah, and Lou Makers is growing and stuff like that. So what are some of the day-to-day -day tasks and responsibilities that you do? I know you talked about off-site surveys, kind of just walk me through your, your, your a day in the life of Darby. Okay, so <laughs> a day in the life of Darby starts with making nine cups of tea. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, 
for my job here at Tulsa, uh, I usually do anywhere from four to six hours of control and on-site surveys um, throughout the week, or sorry, four to six hours a day uh, with on-site surveys throughout the week. And for on-site surveys, I basically just have points on the airfield that allow me to see the majority of the field itself. Um, and I observe for birds or mammals. Um, and then I record the species that I see, the number of them, what activity they were doing. Uh, and then all of this goes into my data log during, um, after which I go back and analyze. I analyze what species we're consistently seeing, uh, if we have any new species, how many of those species are we seeing, so which ones are starting to become more hazardous due to their numbers, uh, as well as I analyze the activities that they're consistently, that I consistently see them doing, um, so that like if they're always perching on man-made structures, uh, maybe we can mitigate that by putting bird spikes out or something. I, I'm observing them to further learn how to best mitigate them here for my client here. Okay. Um, now, as far as working with the actual airport, um, now you probably have a pretty tight knit relationship with their staff. Is that correct? Or most typically, or yes, except I, I wasn't able to see them for most of 2020. <laughs> um, I, we weren't allowed to really talk or interact. We could obviously phone call and they'd call me up if they like needed to go chase a coyote or something. Mm -hmm. um, but for the most part, it's, I, I'm pretty much like, yes, I'm at an international airport, but I'm mostly by myself. Um, okay. I don't see or interact with a lot of people throughout the day. So when you're doing these surveys and stuff like that, how much of that information is used um, or provided to the airport to make, you know, because every airport has to um, have a wildlife hazard management plan and do a WHA, which is a wildlife hazard assessment. How much of your information goes, in, go, goes into that? So to the management plan, I wouldn't say that my information, my data, technically goes into either the management plan or the assessment because the assessment's already been completed and the management plan's already been written. But my data does provide insight for if we have new circumstances arising. So like last year we finished doing a major construction project on a uh, taxiway, Juliet. Um, and then here in a couple months, we're starting another very big construction project on our GA runway. Um, so my data is basically going to show a before picture, before our construction, and then an, a during and an after picture to see how that construction project uh, affected the wildlife in our area. Um, if we had any new attractants, uh, a lot of the time with um, construction projects because there's overturned dirt a lot, uh, you'll have birds coming in to feed on the grubs or eat the grit, uh, the small pebbles and rocks that they use to di help digest their food. Okay. So, my data is more about helping maintain the has the low hazard level for the wildlife. What's um, you know, obviously you've been there for two years now. What's um, you know, what are some of the higher risk species that you have to deal with on a regular? Starlings, starlings are my biggest one of my biggest problems. Um, now if. If, if we're talking year round, it'd be starlings. Uh, if we're talking seasonal, then actually purple martins are uh, pretty pretty big out here um, late July and August. Uh, <clears throat> they um, will show up by flocks of the hundreds of thousands. And they love our trees that we have right out in front of terminal. Mm -hmm. uh, and so they'll roost there at night. Um, but at dusk, before they actually start roosting, 
they will be flying back and forth, back and forth across one of our runways to go <laughs> towards a water source that we have nearby and perch on the power lines there. So I, I will usually post up near those power lines and just shoot individuals off the power line and try to harass, um, basically harass all of these purple martins. So I know one of the techniques that uh, you, <laughs> you use, uh, not just you specifically, but other um, uh, airport wildlife biologists is um, they're, uh, oh, what are they, screamers, whistler, pyrotechnics, right? So bangers and stuff like that, which COVID-19 has created quite a, quite a conundrum for everybody who is looking for pyrotechnics, right? <laughs> They've become really hard to come by, kind of like uh, toilet paper, apparently, back, in, <laughs> back a year ago, when people were searching the black market for Charmin. Um, yeah. yeah, so um, do you use quite a bit of pyrotechnics or anything like that while you're out there? I, I do. Um, I will use pyrotechnics uh, if I'm in an area where I can't lethally depredate or mm -hmm. if I'm in an area where I can't go retrieve the individual that I did depredate. Um, pyrotechnics are usually, they're, they're a really good um, tool to use for just harassment, um, but you do need to reinforce that harassment with lethal control if at all possible. Uh, but my favorite pyrotechnic is probably the bangers. Um, <laughs> Uh, you, you asked for funny stories earlier. One of the, uh, one of the um, funny stories that I have is my first day here by myself, I actually accidentally set fire to my airport on accident. Um, I had a pyrotechnic that I, I, I was new and I didn't know how to look for water damage um, or moisture damage on the pyros. Uh, it's, it's pretty simple. Basically the end with the flash powder starts um, getting swollen and that means it's no longer viable. I didn't know that, so I shot it off. It caught fire, landed, of course, on the other side of the fence. So, in a patch of hay and then when I got there uh, when I finally got there because I had to run around wait for the gate to close and then get there uh, when I finally got there my fire extinguisher wasn't working um, so I just started stomping on my fire to put it out and I did get it put out before the fire department got there though I did get it put it how out big was this fire I gotta know oh it wasn't that big it was oh, okay like maybe 10 15 uh 10 by 15. okay I mean like yeah that's us I mean so like it wasn't like a inferno bonfire. Yeah, it wasn't like an inferno. Okay. So wait, 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 wait. Time out. Back up. How many days on the job were you? Or that was my first day on the job by myself. So up okay. until that, Clayton had been with me training me. Um, How do you make that phone call to? Uh, it's Kristen and Cody are the owners of the company, right? Yeah, How I had that phone call and say, hey. <laughs> Yeah, no. Um, so actually, Tulsa is one of their favorite clients. So I, um, yeah, that, that wouldn't have been a great phone call. I called Clayton. Um, and Clayton, <laughs> going back to uh, his wife, was my professor. He was at my old university doing a student versus faculty volleyball game. And he got the pictures that I sent him of the fire. And mm -hmm. then my phone call. And he's in the middle of a volleyball game. And he just stops playing. And so my old professors come up to him like, hey, what's up? And he tells them, oh, Darby set fire to the airport. And the first thing out of my old physics professor's mouth was, that's par for course. 
Oh man. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> they, they have confidence in me. It's great. <laughs> okay. Well, apparently you kept your job, so you must be pretty, pretty solid in other aspects of it. Um, okay. So first day alone, you start a fire. Uh, what are some of the other kind of like, I mean, in this industry for what you guys do, um, like I've told you this before, we had this conversation before. I, I thoroughly think that there should be a TV show about what you, what, I mean, cause every day is pretty much a little bit different and there's all these, I mean, you're working with wildlife, they're unpredictable and we're trying to make, you know what I mean? So, um, what are some other blunders? <laughs> um, hmm. I mean, I know it's hard to top. I started a, a, a fire. Oh, that one's, that, that's not my best story. Yeah. Like, I, I know I talked to um, one of your coworkers, and uh, when he first started, he got his hand caught. In a, oh, oh yeah. I do have a story for that. Um, so my Conibear 330 traps. Uh, yeah. I learned most of my skills with the Conibears uh, at or not at, but on YouTube, basically. I basically did a bunch of online and YouTube research. Uh, and <laughs> I was aware of all the safety precautions and everything, but I had a little mishap um, a couple months into using these types of traps. And that mishap was I almost caught my arm in the 330 bear trap, which would have been extremely bad, um, would have broken my arm, probably shattered the bone completely, not just fractured, but like shattered it. Uh, because again, these are designed for beaver, they're designed for kill. Yeah. And so that, that was a really, really scary five minutes afterwards. My, my heart was racing. Um, I, I just kind of packed up all my traps and I went home and I didn't trap for, for the rest of the week. That, that was it. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I've been mauled by a cat, um, bitten by yeah, a you've dog. You've got a feral cat problem out there, right? Is that, is that what I've rumor on the street is uh, you've got some issues with some cats. <laughs> Uh, we've, we've gotten it. So part of that issue was that we had some tenants who were feeding them, um, yeah. and we that taken care of so that the tenants, uh, aren't feeding the cats as much. So we don't have as much of a problem anymore. Um, but no, what happened was I actually found a cat that was obviously somebody's pet. Um, he came right up to me. I put him in the car. He was fine. Uh, got onto the office. And as I was unloading the truck, I had him in here and, Something happened outside. Um, there was some kind of loud noise. I don't remember exactly what, but it startled him. And he just attached himself like koala bear to my leg. Uh, and I had my pants on, thank, like my uh, really thick canvas pants on, thank God. Um, but he shredded my pants. Um, I have actually, I have a scar on my thigh from where his uh, teeth got me. Yeah. So that, that was pretty interesting. Yeah. Uh, so here's a quick story for you. You were good. Yeah, so here's a quick story for you. So um, after college, I, I worked for this uh, uh, this company, and I used to sell payroll and HR. And um, I got promoted, and I go out to Indianapolis, right? And I'm there by myself, right? So I don't have friends or anything like that. So, um, <laughs> so um, the, these a uh, couple of female coworkers asked me. They're like, "Hey, you wanna, you know, you wanna." you want to go out on Friday night after work. We got tickets to this show 
do you want to go? I'm like, yeah, sure, sure. You know, and uh, well, the one lady, she was kind of like the veteran of the sales team and stuff like that. And the others, you know, they were kind of newer like me. So um, I had no idea what I was getting myself into. Right. And uh, so we go and she's like, yeah, we're going to a cat show. I'm like, cat show. Okay. All right. There is a <laughs> traveling cat rock band called the rock cats okay and uh so we had been drinking and uh so you know i'm feeling good and you know obviously um i do kind of have a uh sarcastic way about me so we walk in and all these <laughs> all these people are like your devoted cat moms cat lovers and they are genuinely excited to be there and I thought it was all a joke, right? <laughs> so I'm laughing hysterically. And um, this lady comes up and I'm like, yeah, actually, uh, I brought my friend. Her dad is actually the inventor of Tidy Cats. And so I started telling everybody that this girl <laughs> I was there with, her dad actually invented Tidy Cats and she came to make a giant donation to the local cat society. <laughs> And they treat they treated her like she was Oprah. And <laughs> <laughs> so for like two hours. Um, and then they bring out these freaking cats. And they're just sitting there like pawing like drums and tambourines and stuff like that. Whatever. Like there's no music, right? But and these people went nuts for it. So that's my cat story. <laughs> <laughs> and I played it off because you know I didn't I don't know I didn't have any friends so I was like all right <laughs> you don't so, have any friends that's what happens you end up at a cat show yeah yeah moral of the story um yeah do a little background research so all right enough about cats so all right aside from what you do okay there's a whole other side of your job that you actually do um so and, and walk me through this so the um so airports are required to do a certain amount of training, correct? Mm -hmm. So, and you kind of, you as well as, you know, Cody Mashuska, the uh, vice president of the company, you guys pretty much spearhead the training um, all over the country, right? So just kind of touch on that, walk me through that. Okay. So, um, yes, airports are required to undergo a annual wildlife training. It's typically like a refresher course, and it's most often provided by the USDA. Um, and I believe Loommakers is the only private company that is FAA approved to provide this training, which is a really uh, good thing for us. Um, as for all over the country, mm, not necessarily, at least me personally, um, we have kind of separated ourselves into regions. Uh, I kind of deal with the Midwest and South. So I'm usually in Kansas, Oklahoma, Arkansas, Texas, Florida, Louisiana, um, Mississippi. Uh, so pretty much where the best food is. Yes. Oh yes. yes. Louisiana food is, oh, I can't wait to go back. Like I, I can't, it would be so great. Um, <laughs> we'll come back to food don't worry we'll end on food how about that uh okay so so yeah so you guys are regionalized mm -hmm. okay and uh you cover kind of like i guess the southeast would you call it or maybe? yeah midwest the south yeah, south, east. yeah. um 
Now, we do have another trainer. Uh, he's my counterpart, Bradley. Um, he is, he's pretty great. He does a lot of the East Coast trainings. Um, recently, because of COVID, we've actually uh, started to do this virtual training where it's a shorter training. It's four hours. It's still FAA approved, and we go over all the same content that you do go over in the eight-hour in-person training. Um, but those are really nice uh, because I don't have to travel. Um, I do like the travel, but it's usually two or three days away from my time here in Tulsa. And the virtuals are nice. Um, I like them. Uh, so we do have that option, and that's pretty pretty cost effective as well. But um, Bradley does also do trainings, and um, Cody I think has been focusing on doing a lot of the in-person trainings lately because he really likes to likes to do the travel and like go taste extra or exotic food and stuff. I know I can't. Yeah, yeah, I gotta, I gotta latch on to that. So, um, so you said the USDA uh, primarily. What's the, in your opinion, obviously, because you know you're the the industry expert here. Um, you know, Lou Makers being a private company, obviously, <laughs> USDA is government ran. What's the biggest difference between your guys's training opposed to the USDA? So I can't necessarily speak from personal experience because I've never sat in on a USDA wildlife training. Yeah. What are your clients telling you? How about that? Um, my, I believe my clients are most typically telling me uh, that our trainings are more enjoyable because they are fresh. Um, that's one thing that we as a company try to do is every year or two years, we try to come up with fresh curriculum. So actually, that was my big project this last uh, winter was I built the 2021 training curriculum. And so we go over um, alternate forms of harassment and mitigation. So uh, most people typically or most airports typically only use like pyros, firearms or vehicles for their wildlife uh, mitigation. So we go over a bunch of other options like using RC units, uh, remote control units, uh, different types of trapping, lethal and non-lethal, um, methyl and thranolate, which is a really big one that a lot of people don't know about. Uh, that is a chemical that you apply to turf or uh, fog into a hangar, and that is, it's basically grapefruit flavoring. It is food grade, um, biodegradable, non-toxic, all sorts of stuff, uh, and it acts like a mace for birds. It gets in their mucal mm. membranes and kind of irritates them, so their nose, their mouth, and their throat and stuff. Um, then another PowerPoint, we go over uh, drones, um, how to get qualified, certified, what the FAA requires from them, and then how to use them for wildlife mitigation. Um, but uh, I'm so excited about drones. I, I could talk about yeah. it. But, uh, we'll they... make, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what, we'll have you on again. And that's what we'll focus on because holy crap, I'm very passionate about drones. Because yeah. I have done so much research and some of the blogs that I write uh, surrounding, you know, kind of the, the pros and the cons and then, you know, of, of, of biologists using them opposed to just, you know, me and my son going out there and flying them. And then we'll even get into the whole falconry part of it. Yes, that's also something else, something that we also go over. PowerPoints um, and working dogs and stuff like that. But yeah, drones, like they have so many uses and not just in wildlife for an airport. Like you can use them for your perimeter fence inspections. You can use them for habitat surveys, um, especially in areas that have hard to reach areas. Or I know some smaller airports um, have a contract with a farmer and FAA approved, they are allowed to grow crops. Uh, in their area. So obviously they don't want to be driving through the farmer's crops. So using a drone, you can get aerial surveys of those areas and stuff. Um, 
you can do runway inspections with them. There are certain drones that come with sensory equipment that allows you to replace coring, taking coring samples from your runway. Um, there's also ones that all, that come with like heat thermals and stuff, so you can look for weak spots in your pavement. Yeah. They have a lot of uses, um, and I'm really excited for them. They're they're coming. Yeah. Coming. So okay, so so you know, Lou Maker's uh, uh, training program a little bit more up to date, or because I, I this is what I'm thinking, right? <laughs> I'm thinking like those videos that we used to watch in like health class, you know, <laughs> with like the screen and the reel and stuff like that. Um, especially like the sex education ones that were just like, man, this is like filmed in like the seventies. <laughs> like that's what I'm thinking in my head. Yeah. Is, like, when you hear somebody say, you know, they're a little bit more up to date. So yeah, that's just kind of what I'm thinking in my head. Again, I can't, I've never sat in on a USDA trading, but I, I do feel confident in saying that we, sure offer at least a different take on the same content. Okay. Um, possibly a more fresh take. Uh, they might, might have updated their stuff recently. I don't know. But um, I, I do know that we updated this last year because I built the whole training. Yeah, good. And uh, what's kind of the response that you, so obviously we're in the month of, yeah, we're, we're almost in April, right? So we're through the first uh, first quarter of the year. How many trainings have you done so far? I know, obviously, with the virtual training, you know, we, you know Lou Makers can do a ton more. Um, how many have you done so far this year, Ballpark? Ooh, um, I think I had five or six trainings in January. Um, and then in February, I had some personal stuff happen, and I wasn't available for training, so I didn't do any in February. And I've done uh one two three four four trainings um for march thus far uh last year for 2020 i did i think over 30 um but mm -hmm. most of those were actually in person okay. um <clears throat> so, nice. uh, maybe so, you, not so yeah you, you, so training you're pretty busy that's that's awesome so um have you seen a big positive um i mean obviously you know covid Ugh. but have you seen, have you gotten some pretty good feedback from the new training uh, program? Yeah, um, I've had a lot of people say that they really like uh, going over alternate forms of harassment. Um, one thing, one of the more constructive pieces of criticism that I got was that not all of the content in, say, the, the alternate mitigations uh, is applicable to all airports. So that's one of the things uh, I intend to go back and um, redo is uh, kind of make it more easy to flip through stuff that's uh, airport specific for, specific for that airport. So yeah. technically that specific airport for that training might be able to utilize more so than other things. Maybe they're, they have an agreement with their city or they're not allowed to do other things or something or budget. Yeah, because correct me if I'm wrong, but um, when you do these trainings, right, the airport that you're doing the training for, they have to provide you or it's encouraged to provide you with a copy of their, um, what is it, WHMP, WHA, like what else do they have to, so that you can actually, because you tailor your training specifically for that airport, right? Typically, yes, uh, we, we try to do that. Um, so one, the documents that I typically request from an airport prior to the training are their wildlife data logs for the past year. 
or two years. Um, and then their current management plan and their current state and federal permits. Um, and the looking at their current state and federal permits, I'm able to see what they're allowed to take and what they aren't allowed to take, what methods they're allowed to use for take, um, and their management plan and stuff. I can look and see what they've had issues with in the past and how, what they're doing to mitigate for those issues. Um, and then the data logs uh, I use to analyze those um, to see what wildlife species they are seeing the most of and if it's if there's a seasonality factor. So obviously a lot of airports are going to see more Canada geese during migration season. Um, but then during like the peak of summer, um, oftentimes you'll see like a bunch of dove or something in some of the southern states airports. Mm -hmm. Uh, so it's just, uh, I'll look, I'll analyze the data. Um, that also goes into doing the management plan review, which is also an annual thing that they're required to do. Um, and we do provide that as well, usually in conjunction with the trainings. Um, and those, again, you analyze the data. That's the first big section of the, of the review. And then the rest of it is basically, are you guys still following your management plan? Do you have any new uh, um, changes that need to be uh, edited for your management plan, et cetera? Um, just okay. any. Nice. So, um, so yeah, so pre-COVID, you were doing all this stuff in person, right? So you're traveling around your region, you're doing these trainings in person, right? Okay. <laughs> um, so I've actually attended one of these classes uh, last year in August. Um, I went down to Pennsylvania uh, and went to one of these trainings, right? And uh, one of the things that I noticed... <laughs> And I'm sure you noticed this too. I'm sure you've got a story or two. And uh, you could definitely, uh, the, 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 uh, there's definitely those that are very into it. There's definitely those that don't want to be there. <laughs> Talk about that. What's it like standing in front of a giant group of people? And <laughs> yeah. So... Uh, if, if you ever get Bradley on the podcast, uh, I, I'm sure he'll have a different experience to tell you. But I actually, when I was hired, I wasn't hired with the intention of becoming a trainer. Um, my predecessor ended up leaving the company uh, soon after I was hired, and I kind of got thrown in the deep end. Um, I gave my first in-person eight-hour training, two eight-hour trainings back-to-back. -back. I had five hours to sleep in between. Um, in January, uh, and I at that point had only been to one training before that. So uh, I kind of got chucked in the deep end. And then following that training, I attended two more trainings with Cody to watch him give the new 2020 curriculum. And then I got yeah. Uh, <laughs> and no, um, for COVID, no, I wasn't uh, travel restricted, actually. I was the expendable one. Um, I got sent to <laughs> Texas. I got sent to Florida. I specifically Palm Beach, yeah. where it was a huge hotspot at the time. So I'm like over there dousing myself in Germex, got two masks on, almost like want a hazmat suit, the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, yeah, because Cody, you know, we're, you know, up here in New York. And yeah, you have a lot yeah of we yeah. I mean, there was there was a point where, um, like even going out for groceries, like it was like sneaking out, like, <laughs> like the borders were shut down basically. <laughs> By borders, yeah, I mean the streets. Yeah, it was insane. It was insane. So, um, <laughs> have you any have you had anybody ever fall asleep in one of your trainings? 
Yes, but uh, if I if it is an in-person training, I have this technique called a uh, wake up, yeah. and basically I have a ba bag of candy with me. I usually just chuck it at people. Yes, that is exactly what I do. Because typically yeah. it's like a younger guy or um, gal who's just like not into the training, not engaged. And I do try to make the trainings as engaging as possible. So usually I'll chuck a candy right. at that person. And then there on after, I am talking to that person um, quite a bit. I'm asking them questions. Uh, I'm asking them for funny stories, for their mm -hmm. funny experiences, that kind of stuff. And that, that yeah. usually helps. I get some more engaged. Yeah. So... Um... My story with the training is, right, so um, so I actually attended one of Bradley's trainings. Mm -hmm. And um, and Cody was in the back room, or in the back. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there was a question or whatever, and I answered, and I was like, oh, yeah, you know, seagulls, right? You know, a seagull, right? Oh, no. Oh, ah. my God, right? <laughs> and they're like, at, like, Bradley just, like, stops and turns, right? And Cody starts laughing. He's like, hmm, a seagull. What sea did it come from? And I'm like, wait, what? So I'm like, I've gone through my whole life. Like, I'm not a biologist, right? So like, <laughs> and that's what I've learned is like, man, all these biologists that you, you know, that I talk to or that I run into, don't ever say seagull. And you better know like the Latin name for a freaking tree or a plant. I don't vegetate as much as I love plants like I grow I do gardening and stuff I don't know scientific names mm -hmm. for any type of plant yeah so what is it heron gulls and ring neck gulls or ring ring gulls yeah. and Franklin's gulls yeah did yeah. uh did don't call them a seal though holy crap <laughs> did, did you, did, have, you, have you ever called them Canadian geese in front of him no I wouldn't, because he's like, how do you know they're from Canada? They come down here ma doused in maple syrup or something like that? And no, it's Canada geese is their technical name. So Cody will also get people on that one a lot, too. Yeah. It's like the, yeah, it's the wildlife biologist, like, joke, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so. Um, okay, cool. So um, coming up, you actually are a guest speaker guest presenter right at the what is it the oklahoma uh, association of aeronautics you're going to give a wildlife management presentation correct correct okay um what are do you have you ever done this before or is this new i have attended con a conference before um but again that was when i was very new um so i attended it i didn't necessarily i didn't speak at it really at all okay. um what so are some of the topics that you're probably going to present there uh i don't know i have a, i have a couple ideas um first and foremost being uh probably discussing new types of mitigation um and or going over um, management plans and edits that airports might want to look at, especially if they have ongoing or if they've uh, recently completed construction projects. Um, or maybe going over assessments and um, who knows, like maybe re have ask, uh, ask people if they feel it's necessary to redo their assessment because you do an assessment. It's a it's a 12 month period of several different types of surveys you have five or six avian surveys, you have insect surveys, you have vegetation surveys, sometimes wetland surveys. Um, you have all of these different types of information. And after, you know, 10, 15 years, 
a lot of that information, while it's still good, may not truly reflect the airport situation anymore. Um, just because airports landscapes, they change uh, with construction and stuff. So that is something I'm, I might talk about. Um, as of right now, I am waiting for Kristen and Cody to uh, discuss more of what I should talk about. Um, yeah, got to Yeah, yeah. Got to Got to make sure it's okay. Um, so uh, last thing, and then uh, I'm going to let you go. Um, and you can go back to working out in the rain, which is that's the noise that we're hearing in the background, right? It's raindrops, right? Yep, it's it's hitting the little rain guard that's on top of my door. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I know you and I had this conversation recently. Um, so you had to do quite a bit of research, uh, is in uh to to get some answers for how to haze uh eagles, right? You got You had an <laughs> eagle issue, right? Yes. Yes. All I right. did. Yeah. Yep. Do it up. Talk to me. <laughs> So are you wanting my specific eagle issue here or the research that I did to make the bald eagle PowerPoint for our trainings? Oh, give me the, give me, give me it all. So sure. correct me if I'm wrong, right? So you had some eagles that have been, they've been building nests nearby, right? So you've actually been correct. seeing them and you know, they are a hazard, but they're protected. I mean, it's a bald eagle, man. Yeah. It's the American symbol. Um, so depredations out and, but hazing, right? So hazing typically, you know, hazing's fair game for everything, but not for an eagle, right? So kind of walk me through what you've, what you found out, you know, as far as what you're allowed to do and what you're not allowed to do. Okay. So technically hazing is only legal if you have the permit that allows you to haze that particular species. And most species are covered under the migratory bird permit. Um, for bald eagles, there is a permit called the bald eagle depredation permit. Now, it, it's a little bit of a misnomer. Um, there is no lethal control or injury allowed under this permit. It is harassment only or disturbance, if you want to get specific. Um, so most typically, um, for at least here, I'll, I'll start with my situation here at Tulsa. Um, we have right north of our airport um, and right north of two of our approach and departure uh, ends of our runways, we have Mohawk Park. Um, there is a zoo, there is a nature reserve, there's a bird sanctuary. Um, that's part of where my beaver problems uh, come from. Um, so basically we just have this whole wilderness area just immediately north of us. It's not ideal, but um, that's what we got. Uh, and the bald eagles have a nest or two in somewhere in Mohawk Park. Um, and that issue, or that becomes an issue for me when they are soaring or flying above my airport and above my runways, uh, looking for food or looking for nesting material, or, you know, just doing what bald eagles do, which is look cool. Um, so with bald eagles specifically here, I started looking into getting the, bald, the federal bald eagle depredation permit because I thought we had to have that in order to um, haze the birds. It turns out that airports are actually given a little bit of a leeway. You airports, if you are an airport entity, are allowed to haze a bald eagle if you do not disturb the eagle. So that is verbatim from the frequently asked questions about the federal bald eagle depredation permit. Um, hazing and disturbance, uh, they define disturbance as anything that is likely to cause injury to the eagle, 
cause a decrease in its productivity for its livelihood. So hunting, feeding, sheltering, breeding, nesting, um, or three, cause nest abandonment. So for a depredation permit, if you have that permit, you are allowed to disturb the eagles to the point of affecting their livelihood. You're still not allowed to depredate or to um, injure, but you are allowed to disturb them to the degree of move, getting them to move away from your area. Um, however, that depredation permit is usually only necessary if you are within 660 feet of that, their nest. Um, that's when the depredation permit really becomes necessary. They do have other types of permits, like there's one permit that is for the um, disruption of eagles, which is kind of a, your goal isn't to disrupt the eagles, um, but you will accidentally disrupt the eagles. And that's typically for like construction projects or something. Um, sorry, have I answered your question on this? Oh yeah, keep going, you're doing great. So um, for my situation here at Tulsa, um, we have retention ponds um, towards the middle of the airport. And we actually have a lot of turtles <laughs> in those ponds. And I didn't know this, but eagles love turtles. Um, huh, I didn't know that either. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't know that either. Um, I mean, but, I love turtle soup. I mean, it's delicious, I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> yeah, there's some pretty big turtles out there too. Um, there's one one guy who's, you know, he, he's pretty stinking big. Okay. But, we will, uh, I'll see them um, flying over the airport. Sometimes they'll post up in the trees near the ponds. Now I've never actually seen them feeding or hunting over the ponds, but the ponds are the only attractant that I can think of for the eagles. So I've been monitoring the ponds um, a lot more uh, recently so that I can see if they're actually hunting from there. And if they are, then to remove that attractant, I can start um, um, trapping turtles, which is a whole nother thing. Um, but for airports in general, uh, if you have a bald eagle that is flying over your airport um, or loafing on the property, as long as it is not feeding or nesting, the airport is allowed to um, haze the eagle with the condition of not actively trying to injure it. Um, and as long as you are outside of the 660 feet radius from the nest. So if you have a nest that's like 200 feet from your fence line, then you do have to actually go get a depredation permit. Okay. So, I, so I know that, that one's pretty fuzzy. Did I explain that clearly? Yeah. Oh, no, absolutely. So, okay. So, but also, um, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, so, osprey and golden eagles, they fall within that same category, even though they're not listed or something like that? Oh, so, um, actually... Yes, osprey are protected under the Migratory Bird Act, but the bald and golden eagles are protected under the Bald Eagle Protection Act of, I want to say 1918. Mm -hmm. uh, so the bald eagle and the golden eagle and the osprey have actually been removed from the T&E list, the threatened and endangered list. Uh, we, after the whole DDT um, and their population just dropped, uh, we actually, that is a great example of human wildlife management, we actually did, were able to bring those species back. Um, we got rid of DDT and really helped, uh, helped their population come back. Um, yeah. So while bald eagles and golden eagles are no longer um, protected by the uh, T&E list, they are still federally protected under the Bald Eagle Protection Act. Um, and osprey are more considered a standard type of raptor. Um, they don't have necessarily special protection, um, but they are underneath, they are protected under the Migratory Bird Act. Um, mm -hmm. And bald eagles and golden eagle, or sorry, 
Golden Eagles and Osprey actually have an interesting relationship with bald eagles in that whenever you have a birder who is trying to ID a large raptor, um, bald eagles don't get that white head until they're like five years old. So for the first two years of their life, a lot of people actually mistakenly identify them for golden eagles if you're in the southern region of the U.S. or the, sorry, the western region of the U.S. Um, and then for the for ages two and or sorry three and four, um, a lot of people will mistake bald juvenile bald eagles for an adult osprey because um, bald eagles will at that age will have what's called osprey head. So they have the white coming in, but they still have like a lot of brown streaking and osprey is one of their most distinctive markings is that eyeliner uh look that they got going looks like a <laughs> they, they look like um uh somebody just went a little too ham with eyeliner on their uh on the sides it's really thick stripe yeah uh, so they'll have that streaking and a lot of people can mistake it for osprey but bald eagles have a really distinctive silhouette uh when you're trying to identify them from a distance so if you ever need to identify a, a bald eagle from a distance, basically look at it and see, could I put a level on the back and would it still be straight? If the answer is yes, that's probably a bald eagle. They have a very flat wing structure. Um, and same goes for the front. If you're looking at them from below, the front of the shoulders will also form a very straight line. Whereas Osprey actually have a lot, uh, will have a lot of bend in their wrist as they're okay. flying. Um, so they form more of an M in their silhouette. Nice. That's a lot of information. That's awesome. Um, yeah, 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 and you, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's another, that's a part of your job, right? I mean, you know, um, probably didn't have to deal with bald eagles. You know, your predecessor probably didn't really have to deal with bald eagles as much as we do now because they've made such a huge comeback. They really have. Um, I mean, like, for, yeah, I live here in the Finger Lakes region of New York, right? Which is the central area, right? Um, I've lived here my whole life and I had never seen a bald eagle before in the wild until I went on a hunting trip out in Indiana and we're driving this back road and I'm like what the hell is that flying right at us and then I was like holy crap that's an eagle and uh and then you know you know nobody believed me that I saw I saw a bald eagle in southern Indiana right on the Kentucky border and uh and then Two years later, you know, when I, uh, I'm up duck hunting on the shores of Lake Ontario and we shoot a duck and before we could get it, bald eagle comes in and swoops in and just takes it. We're like, was that an eagle? <laughs> that the coolest thing I've ever seen. And, you know, a buddy of mine actually has a story um, down here on the lake that I live on, which is Canisius Lake. Um, you know, bald eagle comes in and swoops and, and, and uh, you know, takes one of the ducks that they had shot. And I moved down here and now there's three of them that I see, like, I've, yeah, I've seen, I see daily. And one of them is a juvenile. And I had no idea. I'm like, man, is, is that an osprey? Like, what is that? What is this? And then, so yeah, so now it makes sense. So um, they have made a huge comeback. Um, what are you seeing the effects of them actually now thriving? Uh, yeah, that's, that's a, that's a great lead in. So actually during my interview with the fish and wildlife service, um, 
we were discussing the fact that the bald eagle population has bounced back so well and now we are actually seeing more conflict uh, between humans and aviation and bald eagles um, because we have more pop um, more numbers of them basically so that's not necessarily a bad thing it just is another hazard that we now have to uh, monitor for um, and bald eagles, one of the reasons, or one of the ways that the FAA ranks uh, hazard, ha the hazardous level of species is based off of their body size. And bald eagles is one of the largest things that you can get in the air. Like aside yeah, from maybe- Yeah, they're not, they're, they're not small whatsoever. Mm -hmm. They're huge. Yeah, you have one of those hit a plane and it's going to severely damage the plane and probably really impact the effect or have a negative impact on the flight. Um, hopefully if, heaven forbid if that ever happens hopefully it's like on landing or on departure where they have enough time to like stay on the ground that the mm -hmm. plane does but um again that that can be a really it, it can get a, it can get dangerous uh having such a large bird in the vicinity of the airport but again like you were saying earlier it's all about balance um we, we have to they were here first they were here well before we came mm -hmm. uh, so we just have to respect that per se um mm -hmm. <clears throat> and try to find a happy mitigation balance. Uh, and because they have such, they've had such a population comeback, um, you actually do see a lot more uh, activity in uh, closer to urban areas rather than yeah. you normally would have seen. Yeah. Would have seen. Yeah, like I said, um, I grew up here, I'm 36, and I saw my first bald eagle here maybe two years ago. And since then I've seen dozens and dozens and i just actually one of my one of my buddies uh texted me the other day and was like is this an eagle nest <laughs> and he sent me a picture of this ginormous tree fort of a <laughs> nest i'm like yep that's okay. So bald eagles nests are really cool. So they will start it off um, and the mated pair will actually come back to it year after year. Um, and sometimes if they don't migrate that much, they will, or if they don't travel that much, they will just stick around the nest. Um, mm -hmm. So you can get bald eagles nests that weigh over a ton. Um, and same with golden eagles and osprey, they can get, they make huge nests and they consistently, consistently come back to them unless something um, happens to the nest or that area is affected. Um, and similar um, with osprey and eagles, you'll also sometimes have the juveniles come back to the area. They won't use the same nest as their parents, but once that juvenile reaches adulthood and sexual maturity and it finds its own uh, mate, you might ha you will probably have that another nest pop up near the first one, as long as there's not a too much resource competition happening. Because um, if that happens, then the parents will just kick the juvenile out of the area. That makes sense. But a uh, cool story, whenever I first moved to Oklahoma, similar to yours, um, yeah. did not have eagles uh, down here at all. And then I was living here for like two or three years and we had a pair of eagles actually build a nest um, above a wetland that's right above or right next to one of the highways that uh, I consistently travel on. And so every time I'm driving down that highway, I'm always looking, 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 see if I can see the bald eagles. And now even cooler, my grandpa uh, with his ranch, he has a mated pair of bald eagles near his property. And he doesn't like it as much as I do because he stocks his ponds with fish and mm. they love those fish. Yeah. So they're actually eating some of his fish and he's not happy about it. What's he stocking it with? Um, catfish, uh, bass, um, he tried, uh, I think it's bluegill crappie. Um, he tried that for a little bit. That yeah. one didn't, uh, 
Um, he's tried. He's he's tried a lot of stuff. Um, there was one yeah. one he was trying an experiment with he was trying to make it uh naturally sustainable so he introduced these these carp because it was over we have uh cattle running so um that manure with the watershed gets flooded into those ponds yeah. algae blooms and stuff so he wanted to make it a bit more um naturally sustainable so he introduced a type of carp uh into that uh pond that actually feeds on all that vegetation yeah. and it actually worked really well um they took care of a lot of the algae and now we have like a really pretty pond with like natural reeds and stuff in there nice that's awesome huh? balance right just just mm -hmm. just working through it so um all right before i go or before i let you go okay we're gonna end on this so i'm a big guy i love food okay and since you you're all you, you're all over the south the southeast there um okay you mentioned Louisiana. So when you go to your conferences or you're doing your trainings, do you have like go-to places that you're looking for certain foods? Uh, see, yes and no. I, Cause this is, this is my, this will be my second year giving training. So I haven't really gone back to any yet uh, mm -hmm. aside from one in Arkansas. Um, and I'm at that airport all the time anyway. So that yeah. was not me. But so what's um, your favorite food down in that region? Fish gumbo is probably my favorite. Um, and here's the thing. I actually don't like fish that much, um, especially freshwater fish. I'm, I like salmon and tuna, but I don't really like like catfish or bass or crappie. Um, and I don't know exactly what fish they had in this gumbo, but um, my, my younger sister was actually with me on that particular trip. And she was making me try all these new things. And they had, yeah. oh, they had some kind of steamed uh, clam and they had garnished it and like um marinated it and all sorts of stuff oh that that was wonderful um I, I could have had like a whole plate of that and i probably would have been sick to my stomach but it was so so good yeah i've had um yeah so i, I spent a little time in uh uh the panhandle of florida <laughs> which uh yeah it's pretty pretty cool but uh i had gator tail Ooh. Uh, Oh, so good. But the gumbo, oh, oh, so good. It so really good. I actually tried to take some on a plane and uh, that didn't go over well. So, yeah. So long story it's short, great. I was really full. I was really full on the plane, uh, <laughs> but that's about it. So um, look, Darby. Thank you so much uh, for being on. Um, I'm definitely going to get you on again. And um, yeah, um, keep up the good work. Uh, thanks for coming on. Hope you had a good time. Um, if, uh, if anybody needs to try and get a hold of you, what's the, best, uh, what's, your, what's the best way if somebody has a question in your region about training or? So probably my email, um, which is E-A-L-B-R-E-C-H-T at loomakers l-o-o-m-a-c-r-e-s dot com so that's e albrecht at loomakers.com um that is my work email and that is probably the best way to get a hold of me if you have questions pertaining to any of the content we discuss or setting up a training or just general questions because we also do just take uh questions and answer them to the best of our ability because uh, we have all of this research that we've already done and all this knowledge like right at our fingertips and like when you look at our company as a whole 
like you said, we're saying earlier, we all have different specialties or areas of interest. So we just have a huge um, knowledge base uh, at our disposal. So if I don't know the answer to your question, I can probably find somebody within the company who does know the answer and either put you in contact with them or um, give them information or give you their, the information that they gave me kind of idea. So we're- Perfect, yeah. Uh, this was this was a great episode. Um, I hope uh, hope a lot of people you know who are listening and that that subscribe to our channel um, learn a lot like I did. Uh, so, uh, anyways, so Darby, thank you so much, and uh, have a good rest of your day. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. We'll talk soon. Thanks.